I know you're asking, where can I get one of those shirts? Man, well, it's a little ways away. Uh, hi, my name is Jeremy. I'm glad you're here to worship with us today. We are coming to the um, next to last, the penultimate sermon in the book of Jonah. Really, this is not in the book of Jonah. This will be from a different book today, but we will, uh, I'll conclude with the story of the prodigal son, and then Pastor David will do a mission vision tie-in as well. So I'd like to continue to welcome you here and uh, begin our, or continue our worship service. Uh, yesterday afternoon, it's, you know, starting the summer routine for my family and I, and so um, inevitably that changes the number of things, and one of which is how clean or dirty the children come in the front door. Uh, in the winter time, they inevitably come in soaked with snow, but generally you drop all that stuff and they're usually clean underneath. Now that they're wearing shorts and t-shirts, there's not a lot of protection, so whatever they step in outside tends to come inside as well. Yesterday I spent the whole day at a retreat and I came home pretty much dressed like this and feeling fairly clean. Meanwhile, my children were the exact opposite. They had spent most of their time at a park and did not come in quite so clean. Well, my little daughter was happy to see me, praise God, and she ran in the door and she's like, Daddy, 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 read me a book, read me a book. I'm like, sure, come on over, let's read a book. And she hopped on my lap and I put my arms around her and all of a sudden our arms kind of stuck. And I was like, hmm, you're kind of sticky. <laughs> and I looked at her little feet and they were quite a bit uh, dirtier and darker than they usually are, and her hands were as well, and her hair didn't exactly smell like her favorite little apple blossom, Elsa shampoo. And I thought, this is kind of, okay, you're sticky, you're dirty. But I was extremely happy to see my daughter, and I love her very much, and so by no means was I going to give her the stiff arm and say, I'm sorry, Eden, no book reading right now. You're too dirty for me. I don't want to be near you. By no means. I accept her. She comes, sits on my lap. I put my arms around her. We read the book. We have a great time. But then later that day, what am I going to do? Give her a bath, by all means. I mean, I love her and I accept her unconditionally, but I can't let her stay like that, right? I mean, eventually, the, the initial response is acceptance, but it entails in it eventually the fact that I will clean her up because I love her. I don't want her to stay dirty. Today we're looking at the story of the prodigal son and I think it functions a lot in the same way. This person is coming metaphorically, if you will, and also physically dirty. They are returning to the father and the initial response, the first response, is acceptance. Right away, the father accepts. But we need to be careful in our culture because sometimes what we do is we say unconditional love and unconditional acceptance means um, we're never going to clean up. That is not the case. It's not clean up before you get here and then I'll accept you. And it's not come dirty and stay dirty, but it's instead I accept you unconditionally right away and then as the opportunity arises, I will clean you up as we go. So today we conclude the Jonah series then with this story, this parable of the prodigal son. I believe that the story of Jonah is a literal story. This story is a genuine parable. It's one that Jesus is using 
to make a point. And one of the questions that came up to me this week was, why would you conclude the book of Jonah with a parable of the prodigal son? Why would you do that? What's the tie-in? How do they connect? And the answer is this, is basically the themes in these two, the historical story of Jonah and the New Testament parable of the prodigal son, are exactly the same. The message is identical. It's equivalent. And the story of Jonah, if you remember, communicates this. We tried to, very hard to say, it's not the story of Jonah and the whale. You know, despite what you remember from Sunday school and from everywhere else, this is not about a whale. Instead, this is the story of Jonah's God, the God of amazing grace. So too, in the exact same way, as we look at it today, I hope you'll see, the story of the prodigal son is not the story of the prodigal in any way whatsoever. This is not about the prodigal. Yes, he's in there. Yes, he's a foil. Yes, he's a main character. But the point is not the prodigal, but instead the prodigal's dad. So for Jonah and for the prodigal, for the prophet and for the prodigal, for the prodigal prophet and the prodigal son, the theme is fundamentally the same, and that revolves around God. And here it is said in Exodus to Moses at the very beginning. This is what both of these stories are trying to communicate. That God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God is. And that's a big deal. Because Jonah is trying to communicate that to people who have never heard of him. We're trying to communicate that to people who have never heard of him. And how God is determines how we should be as well. That's the North Star or the rubric of everything else. So, as we tell our children in both stories, God is good and God is great. The parable of the prodigal son and the story of Jonah are both a picture of God's heart. So what I want to do today then is this, is basically I'm going to, uh, what I just did, recap the theme of Jonah, and then I'll uh, give you the context and the sort of the purpose of the parable of the prodigal son. Then we'll expound or explain the, the, the parable. And then we will give you your appeal or your uh, application. So basically it's context, exposition, application. And indeed, I think that's the way any uh, good communication of Scripture should go. You put it in its proper place, you explain it, and then you apply it to your daily lives. So... Here's how we'll do it for today. Number one, we're talking about the context. One of the things that I love about Jesus is this. Um, his life experienced a tremendous amount of opposition. Nearly everywhere you look at every opportune moment, somebody is upset at him. And I don't know what your lives are like. Perhaps they're all roses and you know, butterflies. But in my life... I experience opposition. And so one of the ways in which I most quickly identify with my Savior is through how he handles either difficult conversations or accusations or tricky spots. And I love to watch him negotiate very carefully his way through these. 
Such is the case with these parables. What's happening is Jesus' opposition, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the aristocracy, the ruling elite, the bigwigs, if you will, are coming to him and basically they're mad at him. Because here's a guy who's taking the limelight away from them. They're used to being the teachers. They're used to being the experts. They're used to being the religious authority. And all of a sudden, here's some up-and-coming pauper from um, Nazareth. And, and people are saying, wow, you've got to listen to this guy. And they're calling him rabbi. And they're following him. And there's this buzz and this excitement. And everybody's going after him. And they're thinking, hey, ho, ho slow down. Who commissioned you? Who gave you your authority? Did you graduate from the same university that I do? Do you have the same credentials? Are you approved? Are you qualified? We're not so sure about you. Come back here. Let's reel you in a little bit. And you tell us, what credentials do you have? So they come with all these trick questions. And they want to trap him. And they want to get him in trouble. And Jesus is no fool, obviously. So rather than give himself away or step into their traps, what he does is he answers with parables. And these parables are beautiful because basically it does a couple of things. One is it's sort of a, a, it's a, an offensive weapon against his opposition. Because in the parable, they can figure out if they're really paying attention who they are and realize what he's actually saying. But it also doesn't give them any ammunition, if you will, to go somewhere else and say, Jesus said this. Jesus said that we're wrong. No, he didn't say that. What he said, instead was a story. Do you want to tell him the story? <laughs> and so it, it sort of takes things and puts them in a way that prevents him from getting in too much trouble too soon, but it communicates openly to the people who would listen, and it causes everyone to say, okay, what is he saying? And is he talking to me? And if so, where am I in that story? Like, am I the good guy or am I the bad guy? Am I the knight in shining armor or am I the not so great guy? Am I the prodigal? Am I the prophet? Am I the older brother? Am I the father? Where do I see myself in this story that he's teaching? And so it sends you away, not with pat answers, but instead thinking, internalizing, applying and letting these truths sink in deep to your heart in more than just sort of a didactic way, but instead in it both an intellectual and an emotional way as well. The story goes after the heart. And so I think Jesus is obviously brilliant, but this is one of the ways that that comes across so clearly. So he uses these parables to hide truth from people that would hurt him and communicate truth to people who would listen. And it's a beautifully brilliant way to walk this path. Now, a couple other things I want to tell you that parables do, because that's going to impact your understanding of this story, is this. Is first of all, they're going to convey deep and meaningful concepts. Uh, but as I said earlier, they're going to ask you to enter in to the story. So it's more than just giving a lecture or a theological argument. It's more than saying, okay, here's my 10 points and I'm going to outline them this way. And by the conclusion of the day, you have to agree with me. No, no. It just leaves it there, hanging, for you to ask the question. Both at the end of the story of Jonah 
And at the end of this story, it doesn't really resolve it for you. It makes you go home and think about it yourself. And then the other thing it does is it takes common experiences and common terms. So, for example, in this section, what you see is uh, the idea of losing something. Inevitably, I think I've told you before that whenever I preach, I'm always tested on what I preach. Now, fortunately for, this, for me this week, I didn't put my wife on the wrong train. However, I did lose a pair of gloves that were really important to me. And I was just going crazy all week. And if anybody who's lost something knows how maddening it is. I mean, you can see that thing in your mind. You know kind of the context of where you last had it, but you can't remember exactly where you last put it, and you're just going, ah. And it's like a splinter in your brain that you just can't get out, and it just bothers you and bothers you and bothers you. That doesn't happen to you. It happens to me. I'm telling you, it bothers me. It gets to me. So my keys go in the same spot every day so that doesn't happen. Well, something else gets lost. You know how it goes. So here you are with this common experience, feeling that angst. And then Jesus uses common terms. Like, for example, in the first story, he talks about what? This is three lost things. What was the first one? Lost what? Before that one. Sheep. So everybody knows what a sheep is, especially in an agrarian society. We're not in that, but in their society, this is a common thing. The next thing is a coin. Everybody knows what a coin is. And the next thing is a son. Everybody knows what a son is. So everyone identifies with this very common experience in common terms. And Jesus is going to communicate through those common experiences in common terms some very deep and profound truths about the heart of God. So it applies to everybody in everyday terms in very deep and meaningful ways. So for example, a sheep belongs to a shepherd. And basically the shepherd, does he, he does not own the sheep, but instead he supervises or manages them. So this is like his job. Okay, so this would apply to you in your employment situation. Secondly, a coin, in this case, it's more than just a penny you pass over on the ground. But in this context, the coin is going to more than likely be part of her bridal gift from her parents, like a dowry or something like that. This is her family estate. This is her inheritance. This is a big deal. So this would be like your savings or your um, 403B or your 401K or this is going to be your... Uh, package that you get from your employer or whatever it is, this is a big deal. So we've gone from sort of your daily responsibility to your nest egg to now finally your son, which is like the most important relationship, especially in a Jewish patriarchal culture. This is a family. This is a big deal. So you see in those things that Jesus uses a progression of value. There's one thing you care about quite a bit. It's your job. So you work hard to do well. But at the end of the day, we recognize if we mess up at our work, it's just our employer. They'll fire us. And eventually, hopefully, we'll get a new job and life will go on. I mean, we don't want them to be there, but that's the way it is. But then the next thing is like your life savings, your inheritance, your estate. And you're like, whoo. Definitely don't want to blow that one. Whew, that's a big deal. And then finally you come to the sun, which is the culmination or the pinnacle of all things, the 
most significant relationships you care about in your entire life. To mess up on one is significant. To mess up on the other is really significant. To mess up on the third, man, that's devastating. That is absolutely devastating. And when that happens, basically you find yourself in the same boat as the sailors. My guess is as I'm going through those things this morning, I don't know where you're at other than sitting in these pews, but there's very likely the opportunity that you've experienced some of those things, whether you've had a difficult go at work or whether you've had trouble in your financial life or whether you've had trouble in the relationships that are most significant to you. And you're sitting there, I think, then in the boat with the sailors and with Jonah and the metaphorical storm is coming and the winds are blowing and the waves are raging and you're shaking. You're moving back and forth and you're looking up to God saying, Dear God, please help. Man, is there a God out there who could help with something like this? Is there a God who cares if I blew it? I mean, there's a lot of factors in life, but what if it was my fault? Is there a God who cares about me? Is there one that feels saddened by human misery? Is there one that I can actually trust? These pagan sailors, they don't know and they don't have a clue and they're calling out just like me and you. Is there a God who will forgive and relent from sending disaster? Is there a God who with a simple word of his mouth can still the storm? Is there a God like that? Because man, if there is, boy, I'm in. <laughs> I could really use his help. Enter with me into the story that answers that question. The parable of the prodigal son. This is Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. I'll read it for you, and then we'll talk about it, and we'll see how it applies to your life. Luke chapter 15. We'll have, a par or we'll have it up on the screen. We also have Bibles in the back. You have your phones, whatever you want. But here we go. It says this, Jesus answering his opposition said, There was a man who had two sons. Not one, two. It's not the parable of a son, but the sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now here's the second half of the story, the second son. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard the music and the dancing. And he called out to one of the servants and asked, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in and his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf. And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting or it's necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me point out a few things that I'm hoping you haven't seen in this story before. If you have, just smile and pretend that you haven't. Verse 1, as I hinted already, it says there was a man and two sons. Again, this is two, not one. This is the parable of the prodigal sons. Not the prodigal son, but the prodigal sons. There's more than one, and that is on purpose. One of the first things that uh, you're supposed to notice, I think, is that in verse 13... The text is sort of using this hyperbolic or over-exaggerated understatement. And it says, not many days later, the younger son uh, gathered all his stuff and went into a far country. It's a little bit like this. When I was growing up, if my mom made something that was really good and my dad was eating it, he would say this, it's not so bad. And we knew right away as kids, that's something we got to try. Dad's trying to hold back. He doesn't want to give it away because he wants extra for himself. But the reality is, whatever it is that's right there is really good. If, if that pie isn't half bad, that actually means it's very, very good. So too, in this scenario, when the text says, not many days later, basically the kid runs in, he cashes his chips, and he is getting out of Dodge. He's not waiting to stick around to say goodbye to mom or shake his brother's hand or anything else. He has no interest in this family. He's gone. He's done. He got what he wanted, which was not them. It was their money. Thank you very much. I am out of here. Ka-ching. You're as good as dead to me, but now I got what I want. How would that make you feel? <laughs> not very good. Thank you, mom. See you later. You spent your entire life making my lunches, wiping my bottom, picking up my messes, and now I'm just going to take the money and run. Not very thankful, that's for sure. Not many days later, boom, he's out. And it also says that he went into a far country. Is there anybody else you've heard about recently who happened to go to a far country? 
What was it? Who was it? Jonah. Now, what was the far country that Jonah originally tried to get to? Does anybody remember? What was it? Tarshish. That's exactly right. He was trying to get to Tarshish. And why was he going there? Why? Get away from who? God, to flee from the presence of the Lord. What do you think this young man is doing? He's running off to get away from the presence of the Lord. He's away from home. He's gone from mommy and daddy. There's no authority hanging over his head. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? He's gone. I am on my own. I don't have to answer these folks anymore. I can do whatever I want. The yoke is off. Authority, I'm free. Hello, party. <laughs> Here comes the prodigal son. He went off to a far country. He doesn't want people there seeing what he's actually doing. He wants to go someplace where he thinks he's safe. He's out. I'm gone. And he runs out and he ends up desperate and in big trouble. And as a result, you can see that he was longing to be fed with the pigs. And he was in the bottom and the depths of despair. In other words, his life went, which is down. He went down, 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 down. Anybody else you know who the Bible describes as their life going down? Jonah, exactly right. Jonah's in the belly, uh, he's in the bottom of the ship and in the belly of the fish. He's at his wit's end. He's at the end of his rope. And what does he do? He calls out to God. This guy, same thing. Now he's come to the end of his rope, his wit's end. He is intentionally, God has isolated him from his friends and family, just like Jonah. He doesn't have anyone else to turn to. Who's going to help him in this foreign land? Nobody cares about him. No one's going to bail him out. There's only one place he can go. He has hit rock bottom. Look, I don't know where you're at, but I know that I've interacted with a lot of people who have someone in their family who is intentionally rebelling against God. And I don't personally think it's a bad prayer for you to say, God, let him hit the bottom. You know, we don't want that to happen to anybody, and we really care about them, and we pray they don't. But sometimes it takes hitting that hard on the ground before you bounce back and actually look up. You can pray, Lord, please redeem, please save, please whatever. But at some point, sometimes people have to come to the end of the rope before they turn around and look back. Here's Jonah. Here's the prodigal son. They're at the end, and finally they're turning around. Now, if you're in Jesus' audience, we're going to step out of the story for a minute. You're in Jesus' audience. You're a Pharisee. You're a Sadducee. You're like, yeah. Bam. Got him. He's so down. You know, this dude... He shirked his responsibility. He messed up his family's inheritance. He sold the family farm. He, in an honor and shame society, but shame to his father. This is the worst thing a son could possibly do. He deserves it. Get him. Eat him up, piggies. Bite his little bottom. This will be good for him. Maybe he'll learn his lesson. Ha, 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 ha. They're ready to rub it in. They think the story ends right there. Boom, end of parable, right? Guy got what he deserved, justice. Is that what God is like? Is that the God of Scripture? Is that where God stops? Does he perhaps take an extra step to follow after his wayward prophet or his wayward son? The story goes on. This unexpected twist 
says, all of a sudden he came to himself. And I think that's just a beautiful, beautiful line. Because how many times have you wanted certain people to do that? I mean, you think, you are out of your mind. What are you doing? Do you have any idea which way you're headed? You're going to destroy yourself. Hello? Snap out of it. Come back around. Is anybody home? Please listen. Come back. Who are you? That's not you. Jonah, wake up. Wake up, man. There's a storm. We've cried out to all the other gods. Maybe yours will help us. Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your country? What's your occupation? Remember all those identity questions? What was the answer? I'm a Hebrew. I serve the Lord God of heaven, of heaven and earth. Prodigal, wake up, man. You're surrounded by pigs. When are you coming back? Dude, who are you? Are you one of these, or are you part of the covenant community? Wake up. He came to himself, and he starts to realize, oh, man, this isn't who I am. I'm not supposed to be here. And verse 20 says, he arose. Rise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, that great city. And Jonah arose and went the wrong way. All of a sudden, the prodigal prophet, or I mean the prodigal son, he arose. And he came to his father. And here's one of the most beautiful lines that we all love. It says this, but while he was still a long ways off, he wasn't even close. How many sinners are far from God when God finds them? He was a long, 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 long way off. His father felt compassion for him. Do you remember Jonah? Who's pity the plant, but I pity the city. God feels compassion. The father felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now the word in the original language here is really neat. The embrace is basically literally translated. He fell on his neck. He just clobbered him. I mean, he tackled him. He was probably running so fast he couldn't stop and just bowled that guy over. <laughs> wow. This is not exactly how I expect to be greeted by my dad, even in this culture. <laughs> Especially not in that culture where for a patriarch to run is completely undignified. He stands and allows everybody else to come to him. He keeps his robes clean and his appearance uh, perfect. But in this case, this guy has thrown all caution to the wind and said, I'm not worried about your social conventions, other people's perception, what I'm supposed to be, what I am pursuing is my son. And boom, he's out the door and there isn't anybody stopping him until he tackles this kid and brings him home. Then it, he embraces him and I want to point out in verse 24, which you'll hear this term again, he says, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Really, this story is the story of the lost and found. Like you walk into the community center or you walk into the church or you walk into everywhere, there's a lost and found. This story, your story, my story, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is the story of lost and found. We lost our way. God found us. God brought us home. We didn't find ourselves. He found us. And he embraced us and he fell on us and he brought us back. And you can see in this passage that it's not uh, just a nominal acceptance either. You have the best robe and a ring. And what that means is in this culture, 
Who do you think in this family the best robe belongs to? The dad, right? He gives him his very favorite king of the household robe. This is my best of my best I'm giving to you. He gives him the ring. What does that mean? Is this a 10 cent thing you get for the dentist? No. This is the signet ring. This is the official stamp and seal to the family fortune, which the kid has just spent. This is now the ability to sell the farm again. Would you hand the keys to the car to someone who just totaled it? Would you hand the checkbook to someone who just overdrafted your account? Would you hand the credit card to someone who's got major issues? As soon as he comes back in the door, God's grace is so powerful that the first thing he does is gives him everything back. That's huge. I'm thinking, oh, slow down, process first. Let's uh, demonstrate a little bit of responsibility, then graduate to a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. That'll make me feel better, right? Nope. Ring, robe, you're in. Whoa. That's not the God of the Pharisees. That's not the God of the Ninevites. This guy's different. Obviously, it's upsetting, and anyone who realizes what's really happening, especially someone who's uh, been doing their job, may not appreciate this. For example, the older brother. And when the older brother learns about all this, he is hacked off. He throws a royal fit, and basically his statement is, that's not fair. Right? That is not fair. How many times your kids or your grandkids or even you yourself said that same very thing? Man, that's not fair. Lord, I've been working this whole job my whole life twice as hard as he has. He got the promotion and I didn't. And that's not fair. Boy, they haven't done a thing in their life and all of a sudden they inherited XYZ from mommy and daddy and now they're lit, taking it easy and I've been busting my tail. And that, Lord, that is not fair. Lord, it is not fair. And... Sure enough, God's grace is not fair. You know why? So we got fair, we're all going to hell. If you want fair, there's no forgiveness. What you want is not fair. What you want is grace. And this story communicates the story of God's amazing grace. It's not the story of the prodigal. It's not the story of the prophet. It's not the story of anything other than God himself and God's amazing grace so here is the older son and he's upset at the scandal of grace and verse 28 tells us he refused to go in he's outside now the father is throwing a banquet and he's inviting people to come in and the son the older brother refuses does that sound like any other parables you've heard there's a big banquet everyone's invited no one's coming what's going to happen so here is the father's heart and it's really pretty sad at this point because here's this older brother who's lived in the presence of his father his entire life. He still doesn't get his dad. These guys just don't see eye to eye. The dad has probably been this way his whole life. Gracious, compassionate, forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in love. And this son, who's been sitting right next to him, hasn't picked up on a thing after all these years. 
And yet the dad doesn't rebuke him or get mad at him or anything else. But just like God talks to Jonah, look how the father talks to the son. He's like, son, you're always with me. You have everything that I have. It's all yours. It's necessary. It's fitting. It is appropriate because when what is lost is found, the father rejoices. This is my heart and this is what I desperately wish was your heart as well. Son, do you do well to be angry about this? Jonah, is it right for you to be mad about the plant? When I have this huge city and all these cattle. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Where were we when God laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. On what were its bases sunk or who laid the cornerstone? Where is the dwelling of light? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Who put wisdom in inward parts? And who can number the clouds? These things, church, were written for your instruction. They happened to them as an example. And the question for us then is the same as it was for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the son, the prophet, and everybody else. Is which, which character are you? Where do you see yourself in this story? Because you're in here somewhere. Maybe you're the prodigal who's totally ran from God your whole life. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're the older brother. You've done everything right, but you've proved that external behavior doesn't always equate to internal change. You showed that you know how to obey the rules, but you've also demonstrated that your heart's really no different. Are you the older brother? Are you the younger brother? Are you the prophet? Are you the sailors? Are you the Ninevites? Are you the father or mother that's looking for the prodigal to come home? Is there a God out there who can help us? One who feels pity when we're in trouble? One who forgives? If there were, boy, I'd sure like to know him. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. The Lord, the God of heaven and earth. You can't get away from him. The prodigal thought he could hide from his father. Jonah thought he could run from the Lord. There is no escape of an omniscient, omnipresent, all-loving, all-wise, all-good God. None. He is the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. He is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who relents from sending disaster. How far would a God like that go? How far do you think he would go to save you? For God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through it might be saved. 
Whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned. That's it. Are you coming in or are you staying out? There's one way. Is there a God like that? I think so. And while we were still a long way off, our father saw us, felt compassion, and ran. He who has ears, let him hear. Can you hear this? Do you see yourself in this story? You're there, written all over it. God wants our hearts to align with his, and he's willing to go a long, long way to help us get there. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this? Older brother, you can come in. Prodigal, it's time to come home. I think it's said well like this, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Patiently, Jesus is waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Lord, hear our prayer. We are in the bottom of the boat. We are in the depths of despair, down with the pigs. And only you can save us. We're dirty, sticky, and stinky, and yuck. But we're coming home. Lord God, please save. Amen.